session three, the patriarchs. We're carrying on with our overview of the Bible, trying to put the Bible story together, and particularly focusing on this theme of God with us. So let me pray. Father God in heaven, your word is a light to our feet, a lamp to our path. And so we pray now that in your mercy you would uh, allow us to see it clearly, see the path uh, you've laid out before us, um, see all you've done before uh, for the good of your people. And help us, we pray, by the power of your spirit, therefore, to walk in your ways. And we ask this knowing we need your grace above all things. So we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, obviously we're not going to be able to recap everything every time, otherwise the recaps are going to end up so long, they're going to be longer than the sessions. But um, we're still in Genesis, so we're still early days, but we've, we've looked at the three-story creation, heavens above, earth below, waters beneath. We've seen how that the world is three zones when it's created, the garden, and then the land, and then the world. And we saw the fall, which was, you know, there was the main fall, obviously the first fall, which is the fall from righteousness to sin. But we saw it worked out last week with Cain and Abel in the land and then uh, the sons of man, the violence spreading across the whole earth. And basically what's happened is everyone's been driven east. East of Eden, the garden has an entrance on the east and they're driven out that way and people go further and further east. So we're going to start today um, after the flood in Genesis 11. And the story of Babel, the Tower of Babel. I'm going, to, I'm going to sort of read and com- comment on it as we go through. So Genesis 11, verse 1. Now the whole earth, we're in the whole earth now, we've moved from the, the land to the whole earth. The whole earth had one language and the same words. Okay, so everyone's united. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar. And it's kind of Babylon, so we're out in the east. Okay, so they, when it says from the east, it's not that they're going back west, they're going further and further east. And they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. So they decided to build this this tower. Now, in in kind of kids' story Bible books, um, typically it's like um, the leading tower of pizza or something, isn't it? It's like um, pizza, um, but it's not wobbling. So just straight up tower. But actually, Babylon in those days was full of these kind of, um, a, bit like, a bit like pyramids, kind of stepped up pyramids, step and step and step and step, sort of ascending up into the heavens. And that seems to be what they're, they're building. You see what they're after in verse 4? They want to reach the heavens. Okay, we're going to build our way to heaven. We're going to make a name for ourselves, verse 4. And their desire is to stop themselves being dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Now that might sound a good thing. Yeah, we want a bit of protection and control. But remember what, what God said, fill the earth. Okay, they're saying, no, we're going to stop, we're going to stay, we're going to make a name for ourselves and we're going to build our own way to heaven. Um, these are the first building works in the Bible. Okay, they're trying to work their way up, pun intended. Verse six and seven. Uh, sorry, five. The Lord came down. It's so small. It has to come down from heaven to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, behold, they're one people. They've all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they'll do. And nothing that they propose to do now will be impossible for them. And so come, let us go down there 
confuse their language so they may not understand one another's speech. Um, what's going on there? Is that, is that judgment or grace? They're one people, they've one language. This is just the beginning of what they'll do, so let's confuse their language so they may not understand one another. In one sense, it's definitely a judgment. Um, he's stopping their plans, scattering them. And that's what we see in verses 8 and 9. The Lord disperses them over the face of the earth. They left off building. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because the Lord, therefore, sorry, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. So there's definitely a judgment on Babel. But it is, in a sense, a blessing too. He is stopping their sin project from reaching its fullest height. Okay, so it is both judgment and mercy at the same time. A bit like when God drove them out of the Garden of Eden because he didn't want them to reach and take the fruit. I don't want you to live forever in sin. Out we go. Judgment and grace. And therefore scattering. And that story is in contrast to um, the famous one that, that, that starts chapter 12, the famous call of Abraham. Remember, the Tower of Babel, they've wanted to make a name for themselves to avoid filling the earth. And they're going to build it by their own efforts. But with chapter 12, we get the first of the patriarchs, the great father figures of Israel. Abraham, uh, as he is, he gets renamed Abraham, so I'm just going to call him Abraham because otherwise I'll just get confused. Um, but Abraham... Chapter 12, verse 1. Huge moment in the Bible story. The Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. And I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you, and those who dishonor you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. There is promises that God makes. Rather than from earth to heaven... The word comes, the word of God comes from heaven to earth and promises, I will make your name great. Not you build your name up. I will make your name great, Abraham. In you, I will bless the nations. So this, this, this curse that's fallen on Babel, in you, all these different tribes will be blessed. And so he sent, um, if you were to read verses sort of four through um, at nine, he, he gets sent. He's out in the east and he gets sent back west. For the first time in Genesis, people are moving back west, back, as it were, towards paradise. Uh, he's heading towards the promised land. And when he gets to the promised land, if you just skip over a few chapters, chapter 15. I'm going to do a bit more on Abraham and Isaac, then you're going to do some discussion. We get that the... The next big covenant. Remember, the Bible's word for God's relationship with his people is a covenant. And so if we're following that theme of how is God with his people, how is he Emmanuel to them? We've no great temples so far or tabernacles or anything like that. He is with them by his promise. His word comes to them and that's kind of it at the moment. But chapter 15 steps things up a, a notch. It's the next step forward really in the, in the, the history of God's people. Uh, let me read from verse 1. After these things, okay, so Abraham's hanging around the land now. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Fear not, Abraham. I am your shield and your reward shall be very great. But Abraham said, O oh Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abraham said, Behold, you've given me no offspring and a member of my household will be my heir. Okay, so so far, Abraham said, well, look, you know, 
God, you made me all these promises. I'm going to be the father of a great nation and all the nations of the earth will bless to me. I haven't even got one kid. At the moment, I've read my will and it's all going to my servant, Eliezer. It's just not looking very promising, is it? And behold, verse 4, the word of the Lord came to him. This man, okay, your servant shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he doesn't have a son at the moment, but that's the promise. And then this famous moment, he, God, brought Abraham outside and said, look towards heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to them, so shall your offspring be. And he, that's Abraham, believed the Lord and the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. Um, This passage is referred to endlessly in the New Testament. We saw it quite a lot in the book of Romans, particularly verse 6 is quoted time and time again um, by Paul. It is this... um, uh, the founding of the great covenant between God and his people. This time it's a covenant not of works. Remember in the garden, the relationship, the covenant was obey me perfectly. Now it's a covenant of grace, of gift, in other words. Not of Abraham doing anything or trying to build his way to heaven, but God blessing, just God giving all these blessings. And all Abraham is called to do, verse 6, is believe. Later on in Galatians, Paul will say God preached the gospel to Abraham. So what's really important as we head through the Old Testament is we realise that at every step of the way, the, 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 the message fundamentally has been the same. It's always been one that you'll be rescued by grace, which you receive through faith. It's never, after the fall, a message of your works save you. And that, that's something that I think we we often stumble with and we'll come back to this when we get to Israel and the Ten Commandments and the law and that kind of um, era but often I think we we think of the Old Testament as um, about sort of physical stuff that the Israelites had to do um, to to earn so they had to obey the law and then they'd have their crops would grow or then they'd be safe from their enemies and it was all about doing whereas when we get to the New Testament thank goodness here's the gospel it's about grace and faith no, all along, it's a case of putting your trust in God's promise, gospel promise, and then you're justified. So verse 6, Abraham believed God and he was justified. Okay, he was counted to him as righteousness. <coughs> now, very specifically, this covenant, so this era of the covenant, okay, which is the Abrahamic era, it's not the era we're in now, but the Abrahamic era, he's promised three things through this covenant. He's promised a people, and the stars, many of the stars are in heaven. He's promised the promised land again. You see that at the end of the passage, um, verse 18. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, To your offspring, I give this land. Okay, he's in Canaan now. And he marks out the boundaries. So there's a, a people, a place, and God promises to be their God. Verse 1 I am your shield. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to be the one who who protects you. It's just a promissory presence at that stage. There's no sort of obvious um, physical manifestation of it. It's not a burning bush or anything like that. But it's a promise that God will be their protection. God will be their God. And and Abraham, he doesn't, we kind of think of him as wandering around lots, don't we? He doesn't really wander around very much. He he goes to the promised land and he pretty much stays there. Um, So at the end of chapter 13, he he got that whole bit with Lot. Do you remember Lot and Abraham stand? They look in two directions. Lot says, I'll have that land, thanks. And Abraham goes into the promised land. And he goes to um, these oaks of Mamre, last verse of chapter 13. Uh, And he's still there in chapter 18 at the oaks of Mamre. So it seems he pretty much just settles down 
builds his kind of hardcore tent that he's going to live in, not a little kind of pop-up thing for the night, um, and settles by these oaks. So he's in the land, and God says, one day this will all belong to you. It doesn't belong to him, but he's in it as a, as a, a wanderer. Uh, I said it's by faith he receives it, that's verse 6, but why are we saying grace is central? Well, it's all part of this covenant ceremony. We touched on this last term, so I'll be relatively quick. Uh, but if, if you're still in chapter 15, Abraham's unsure. Uh, verse 8, oh Lord God, how am I to know that I'm going to possess this land? Look, I'm just one guy with no kids. These all seem pretty massive promises. Okay, imagine you know, God taking you now, putting you in the middle of the USA, if you're single, and saying one day you and your children will rule this land. Yeah, well, okay, it doesn't look very, doesn't really look very likely. I'm one guy with no power and no kids. Uh, and so in verse 9, God says, bring me a bunch of animals. At verse 10, he brings these, cuts them in half, lays them out either side of each other. And as the sun, 12, verse, verse 12, sorry, as the sun goes down, a deep sleep fell on Abraham. Okay, so he's basically knocked out. Darkness falls on him. He can't do anything. He's just lying there. And God makes the promise, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that's not theirs and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted there for 400 years. What's God promising there? What's this land that Abraham's descendants are going to be um, uh, sojourners in for 400 years? Egypt. Yeah, whoever said Egypt. Yeah, that's right. Okay, so he's promising the Exodus. Okay, so one day you're going to leave this land that you're in now and you're going to be stuck in Egypt for 400 years and though you'll be afflicted, you'll suffer. But, verse 14, I will bring judgment on the nation they serve and afterwards they shall come out with great possessions. That's what happens, isn't it? Very often, we'll see this in Esther, very often the Bible story is... um, you start here, it gets worse for a bit, and then it gets much better, like a tick. Down a bit, and then up even further. Um, so here you are, Abraham, you've got all these promises, then it's going to get a bit worse for a bit, and then it's going to get way better. He's going to come out of Egypt with way more than you went in with. Uh, verse 17. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying to your offspring, I give this land. Um, the way you made covenants, these relationships in the ancient world, was when you had a senior and a junior, so the, the, the emperor and the junior <coughs> tribal chief or something. Um, the junior would cut the animals in half, walk between them and make promises to the emperor, saying, look, I promise to give you 10 soldiers and 100 gold coins every year. And if I don't, may it be to me like these animals that are killed. Okay, you, you, the senior, you, the boss, can do to me what I've done to these animals. That's the idea. I'm basically promising all my life. And so here, with Abraham as the junior and God as the senior, you'd expect Abraham to walk through the pieces and say, look, I promise to obey you in all things, God, and then I will have, you know, with my obedience, I'll have earned these blessings from you, you know, the land, all the rest of it. But actually, God knocks out Abraham and he himself walks through, which is totally backwards. The senior is walking through. God is saying, over my dead body, I will give you these blessings. And you can begin to see why Paul says this is the gospel that's preached to Abraham. Shadowy, not all the flesh is on the bones, as it were. But God is saying, no, I will deliver. It is by grace that you'll receive all these promises. And that's why Abraham is saved by faith, not by his, his works. Uh, this is the covenant of grace. And that that relationship of grace between God and his people will go right the way through. Fundamentally, you and I are in the same relationship to God as Abraham. Now, the era has changed, so it's no longer for us about 
particular land with the border of the Euphrates and Egypt and all the rest of it. But the, the, the core of it, you know, like a stick of rock, it might have different colours on the outside, but through the middle goes the same message. The core remains the same. You're saved by grace, by God's gift, which you receive just by faith. Let me touch on Isaac, and then you're going to talk about Genesis 22 in your tables. Um, so Abraham's promised you're going to have a son, but he's getting old. He's getting very old. And he's beginning to wonder who on earth his heir will be. Uh, we see it in, uh, in chapter 17, verse 18. Abraham said to God, oh, that Ishmael might live before him, before you. So Abraham has panicked, thought, I haven't got an heir. I know, I'll sleep with, with my wife's servant, a maidservant, and then we'll, we'll make that boy the heir. Okay, he's trying to do it by works. Again, Paul picks this up in Galatians and compares um, this attempt at um, fulfilling the promises by Abraham's own works with the gracious gift of God. So let Ishmael, this son of the, 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 uh, the servant, be the one who inherits. But God's not having it. Um, that is Abraham's own efforts rather than grace. Uh, and so God promises, no, you'll have a son, you'll have this boy, and you'll name him Isaac. And I will make, establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant. In other words, I'm going to pass the promises on to him. So even though Sarah and Abraham are into their 90s and 100s, she is going to be the mother of the promised child. And then lo and behold, unsurprisingly, even though she's 99 at the time, she has a little boy called Isaac uh, in chapter 21. Finally, it looks like it's about to come true. And at this point, we're going to go into groups. Um, have a read of chapter 20. Or does anyone want to ask anything at this stage? Pause questions. Happy. Great. In groups then, have a read of Genesis 22, 1 to 14. A bit of a longer passage. And then I've got three questions for you on the sheet. So a good 10 minutes or so on this. Genesis 22, 1 to 14. The questions are over. Okay. Be... <coughs> let's, let's do some feedback on this. Um got a bit of time oh. okay what's the first question why is it so surprising that God asked Abraham to sacrifice Isaac I'm going to give you the first level one you're not meant to kill your kids okay let's take that one as uh, let's take that one as kind of red and anything particularly surprising given that God is not usually pretty not really pro child sacrifice Talk about anything more than I assume you all recognise it's not right to call your kids. Um, yeah. 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 Exactly. Yeah. So it's, it's there's there's obvious huge shock level to sacrifice your son, <coughs> then you double it when this is the one we've been waiting for for all those years. You know, you're 100 odd years old and you have a kid and God says the whole world's going to be saved through this one. So, you know, if you think about it, down the generations, this is the line of Jesus. Basically, Jesus' bloodline, Jesus' ancestry is going to be cut off just there. Um, so, okay, it's hugely shocking. Um, why does Abraham obey then? I think I'm sure there's more than one thing you could say to this, but what kind of things do you talk about? Why did, why did Abraham obey, given the 
shocking request. Okay, so when you say he's already proven he can do the impossible, are you saying um, he's proved himself trustworthy, so I'll just do it? I ought to just obey him because he's kind of. Okay, so there's definitely huge trust in God. By faith, Abraham does it. Anyone want to kind of... Yeah, Bonnie? Almost like Isaac Okay, so a recognition that ultimately Isaac belongs to God more than he does Abraham. Yeah, so that's... from verse 5 that Abraham believes that both he and Isaac will return. And he says, um, stay here with the donkey, I and yeah. will go over there and worship and come again to you. So yeah. that faith even to the point of if I have to sacrifice Isaac, God can raise him from the dead. Um, and that we will both come back. Yeah, so thank you. Yeah, there's a little clue, isn't there? Just, just, just a hint there. Um, but Hebrews confirms that that's what's going on in Abraham's mind. So in Hebrews 11, by faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And here's the key bit. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. Abraham's like, well, okay, even if I have to kill him, we know it's going to be through Isaac. It's not going to be through another son. It is going to be through Isaac. So even if I have to kill him, given that God's word said it's going to be through Isaac, and given that Isaac hasn't got any kids yet, um, he must be bringing him back from the dead. Okay, he's got such faith in God's word that, okay, well, it doesn't matter what happens to Isaac because he's definitely going to be alive to have kids. And, and the author of Hebrews even goes on, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back from the dead. Doesn't quite die, but you know, almost as if kind of thing. So yeah. Um, so Abraham obeys ultimately because he knows God will save this this child. It's not going to be child sacrifice. It's not going to be the end of Isaac. Um, yeah. There we go. Uh, how does the passage picture the gospel? I mean, there's loads in there. A few things. What what things do you talk about? Yeah. Putting the words, the burnt words on Isaac, I guess is a parallel of putting the cross, the wooden cross on Jesus. Okay, here's the son, the only son, the beloved son as he's called, carrying the instrument of his own um, sacrifice up the hill. Thanks, yeah, exactly. Um, As Christ will, many years later, the beloved son carrying the instrument of his own execution up the hill. Why would he 
Okay. Okay. Totally counterintuitive way of saving the world and delivering on the promise. Thanks, Jen. Okay, yes. Yeah. Thanks, Mandy. That's really helpful. It's easy to get in our head that Isaac is this little baby. You know, like he's, he's you know, Abraham's carrying um, uh, you know, a little sort of one year old up the hill or something. But he's, he's a young lad. You know, he's, he's, he's not, a, he's not a, an infant. Um, so he's obviously going along with it. So, yeah, the, the obedience of the son, trusting the father. Um, it all happens on Mount Moriah, which is where the temple is going to be, the place of sacrifice later. You've got the ram that is substituted at the end. Um, and just on that, by the way, you, I remember reading a, a book on this or a, a commentary on this. Uh, you know, how do you preach Christ from Genesis 22? And the, the guy is saying, um, well, a lot of people think that Isaac is a picture of Jesus, you know, carrying the word up the hill, place of sacrifice, all that sort of stuff. But it can't be that because the ram is. The ram is the substitute. So the ram is what points us to Jesus, not Isaac. I think the strange thing about that is what, you don't have to pick one or the other. Okay, we don't need a method of reading the Old Testament that says, what is the one thing in this passage that points to Jesus and nothing else can be? Um, so one of my lectures at Bible college used to compare the Bible to Narnia and the Lord of the Rings and say, look, it's Lord of the Rings, it's not Narnia. So um, in Narnia, there's only one Jesus character, isn't there? Okay, it's, it's Aslan, that's it. Okay, Aslan. Um, Lord of the Rings, loads of the characters point to Jesus. So um, Aragorn, the king, who's unrecognised but returns to the throne. Gandalf, the kind of the, you know, the powerful, sort of all-knowing wizard, magical character who can do everything. Frodo, who's willing to sacrifice himself. in order. Like, they're all different pointers. We'll get it in, in Esther. You know, which character in Esther is meant to point us to Jesus? Is it Esther? Yeah. Is it Mordecai? Yeah. Can you do it via um, wicked king Ahasuerus in a kind of way of, you know, here's a bad king, see our better one? Yeah. Um, so the Bible's much richer than just this really kind of narrow, where's Wally kind of approach to finding Jesus in the Old, Old Testament. So there's lots going on in Genesis 22. Um, you might have talked about other stuff as well, but um, when you read the Old Testament, remembering it's all gospel, it's all about Christ, it's all salvation by grace through faith, then there's loads of legitimate ways to kind of see how this points on to Jesus one way or another. Um, let's just wrap the story of, of I want to get to the end of Genesis. <laughs> We're going to go much faster in other books of the Bible, but Genesis is obviously pretty foundational. So there you go. Isaac grows up. He gets the covenant promises. Let's flick through. So Genesis 26. Much faster now. Um, and this is God speaking to Isaac. Um, the Lord, verse 2, the Lord appeared to him. That's Isaac and said, don't go down to Egypt. Stay in this land I'll give you and I'll bless. Um, I'll be with you. Okay, there's a presence thing. I will bless you and you and your offspring I will give these lands and I will establish the oath that I swore to your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and to give your offspring these lands and in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. So it's, it's the same blessings given to Abraham that are now passed to Isaac and they're only going down one line. That's why you have lots of these genealogies in the Old Testament. Okay, they're not going to um, Ishmael, they're going to Isaac. Isaac has um, 
two kids, Jacob and Esau. And they don't go to Esau, they go to Jacob. So Genesis 35, you get the same promises again. It's not a new covenant, it's not a new deal. It's the same thing passed down generations. Uh, Verse 9, God appeared to Jacob and said to him, Your name is Jacob, no longer shall you be called Jacob, but Israel. Verse 11, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. Get all of this. All this covenant, this covenant of grace with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, it's all restoring what Adam lost. So stars in heaven is a fulfilment of go, go forth and multiply. It's just that God's doing it this time. A nation, a company of nations shall come from you. Kings shall come from your body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac I'll give to you and your offspring. So there you go, repeated, repeated, repeated. And as you know, by the end of the, the last um, uh, sort of, 10 or so chapters of Genesis all deal with the, the Joseph story. Um, Jacob has the 12 sons. They don't like Joseph through no fault of his own. Joseph doesn't really do much wrong, um, but he's the honoured son. Um, God gives him a dream, a prophecy that he'll be the honoured one. The others will bow down to him. They don't like it, which is their fault, not his. So they beat him up, transport him. They traffic him off into Egypt. Ups and downs of Joseph's story we won't deal with now. But the book ends with all the 12 being reunited in Egypt and Jacob dies at the end of Genesis blessing each of the 12 sons and there's a slightly strange thing that begins to add a new theme in is that whereas we might expect the favourites the, the, the line of Jesus to be the one that goes Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph it doesn't it's Abraham, Isaac, Jacob and then it goes through Judah so Judah's blessing if you're right at the end of Genesis chapter 49 each, each, each of the 12 sons gets a blessing, which we won't obviously look at. But Judah is the really long one. Most people get a line or two, a verse or two. But look at chapter 49, verse 8. Judah, your brother shall praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Okay, you're going to be the ruler. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you've gone up. Verse 10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah. Okay, the scepter being the... Thing the king holds the rules, the rod of kind of rule, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he's washed his garments in wine, and his vesture in the blood of grapes. That's kind of how swanky is this guy going to be? He's going to be a wash in wine. His eyes are darker than wine. His teeth whiter than milk. One of your kids, in other words, is going to be this amazing ruler who can basically bathe in in wine. And those are predictions, obviously, all picked up and applied to Jesus. So Genesis ends with the promise established, the covenant established, and it all somehow heading through Judah. And yet at the moment, they're stuck in exile in Egypt. And that's what we'll pick it up next time. Let me pray. Father in heaven, um, we long for the faith of Abraham. And faith is a gift. And so give us that gift. Give it to us. Give it to the children next door as they hear your word. We long to be those who can just hear your word and believe it. So pour your spirit on us, we pray. Now, this morning as we gather to worship, uh, grow in us faith. Give it to those who have not, um, uh, no faith at the moment. Grow it in those for whom it's, uh, many of us for whom it's a tiny mustard seed. Might we simply be believers in your word, we pray. And this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>